Thanks for listening to the Frontiers podcast. If you have a moment before we start, please rate and follow this podcast. It makes a huge difference. The more of you that do this, the more people get to listen. And the more people that get to listen, the bigger platform I'm building for academics to share their research. Thanks so much. Hi there. You're listening to Frontiers, the podcast that explores cutting-edge research from the world's best scientists. I'm Ian Hallett, and in each episode, I interview professors, doctors, and research scientists who are leading authorities in technology, economics, business, politics, the environment, and sociology, so we can learn about the scientific breakthroughs that will redefine our world. Today, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Professor Kirsten Alfes. Kirsten is Professor of Organization and Human Resource Management at ESCP with research interests including diversity and inclusion, neurodiversity, strategic human resource management, employee engagement, overqualification, and volunteering. I got first introduced to Kirsten because I attended a seminar of hers, which was a really fascinating one and a half days where we went deep into diversity and inclusion, and we cover a lot of the topics in this conversation. So we go deep into trying to understand the external visible aspects of diversity, but also the invisible aspects of diversity. And we get into the realms of neurodiversity and what that means for business leaders and policy makers, what they need to do to create truly inclusive cultures. So please enjoy this conversation with Professor Kirsten Alfes. Professor Alfes, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Ian. It's a pleasure to be with you today. So can we start off right at the top of diversity and inclusion? So I think this is a phrase, a set of terms that not everybody really understands. So from your point of view, how would you define diversity and how would you define inclusion? And when you add the two together, does it change any of the definitions? It's a good question to start with. Um, for me, diversity is having different types of people represented in the workforce, different age cohorts, different gender, um, different sexual orientation, different religions. Um, so diversity in organizations happens by nature because organizations hire different types of, of people. Inclusion then is the implementation of policies and practices that enable everyone, irrespective of who they are, where they're from, to feel included, to feel represented, to feel that their voices are heard, um, to feel that they have an opportunity to succeed and an opportunity to contribute. So basically, diversity is the status quo and inclusion is what organizations do with it in terms of creating a cohesive and an integrative culture. Okay, that's very clear. And what are the different dimensions of diversity? Oh, that's a very, very tough question. Um, we can differentiate very broadly between the characteristics that we see, the dimensions that we see, and the dimensions that we don't see. So if we take a look at the dimensions that we see, I mean, it's obviously it's like gender, it's LGBT, um, to some extent, it's um, ethnic diversity, it's age diversity, is disability versus non-disability. So these are often the characteristics that we can see when we meet a person on a first instance or after a few encounters. Then there is another aspect of diversity, which is below the surface. And that is diversity in education and diversity in values, diversity in upbringing, um, diversity in, in attitudes and life views. And that's obviously much more difficult to see and to uncover. But very often, this is a more important or more relevant ground for conflict within teams. So while the discourse often focuses on the visible parts of diversity, we can see that um, most of the conflicts that happen in team or most of the discussions that happen in team are actually related to the below surface dimensions of diversity. It's interesting because one of the things we'll cover later is neurodiversity, which I'm assuming is one of those not easily to be seen. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And when did this start? So diversity and inclusion is a serious consideration of everybody that runs a company, policymakers, governments, and so on. When did the, the agenda of diversity and inclusion become mainstream, do you think? Because it feels mainstream now, but it didn't feel mainstream maybe 20 years ago. I think the civil rights movement did a lot to actually progress discussions around diversity, around inclusion. So the debate has been around for quite some time now, but the discourse has changed a lot. And it used to be focused more on the people, 
Um, so it was like a people business. So diversity was about including more women or including more people from ethnic minorities in organizations. And it was very much focused on individual groups um, within organizations. And now we see that the discourse has changed in most organizations from being it being like a people thing towards it being a strategic priority. And when I talk to senior managers and uh, when we take a look at also um, CEOs in, in bigger companies, we see that they take a very different approach to diversity and inclusion as they would have taken maybe maybe 20 years ago. Because now it's not an add-on to help women progress. Now it's something that needs to be part of everyday business and that needs to be embedded in each leaders and also each employee's day-to-day -day interactions with others in an organization. And we see what you said, it's becoming mainstream. It's actually a good thing that it's becoming mainstream because it's becoming natural and that's what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be something that we do on top and an effort that we take on top. It's something that should be systematically embedded in the way that everyone in an organization interacts with each other. And therefore, we see lots of changes that have happened um, since the civil rights movement um, started. And has the definition or the dimensions of diversity, has it changed over time? So 10 or 15 years ago, were people emphasizing different elements of it? And now it feels much more broad. So how's that evolution happened? It started with the focus on gender diversity and ethnic diversity. Um, and that was the key concerns that organizations had, had like 10, 20 years ago. And now we see that there are more dimensions of diversity that are discussed in organizations. So LGBT is becoming an important topic. Um, disability, ability, neurodiversity are hot topics that organizations start to be interested in and that they start to investigate. But what I observe is that the discussion actually moves another step forward, moving away from individual categorizations and groups like the women and the LGBT and the disability um, or the disabled people towards, we don't want to categorize people anymore. We want to create an inclusive environment where everyone feels welcomed and where, it, where you don't need to rely on your group to advocate for you, where you can bring yourself to the workplace and where you can be included irrespective of, of who you are. And if you go into organizations today, and this will vary greatly, you'll see workforces that are very diverse and you'll see completely the opposite as well. And I would imagine that if you spoke to the leaders of those organizations, those that don't have a particularly diverse workforce won't be thinking consciously about not having a diverse workforce. It's just the way that it turned out. So, you know, if you're talking to somebody like that and they have a workforce that's not particularly diverse, they've not made that choice. It's just the way it's turned out. And you're trying to convince them of the reasons for why they should adopt a more diverse approach to their recruitment policies, to the people that they have, to their succession planning and so on and so forth. What are the main benefits that you think that they would get if they did that? I think one of my first comments or points for discussion would be that um, in many countries, like I'm living in Germany. So for example, in Germany, we have a real labor shortage. And if you diversify your recruitment and if you specifically target underrepresented groups, you have got the opportunity to substantially enlarge the pool of candidates that you hire. That's the first point. My second comment would be that Younger generations, they are interested in working in a diverse environment. They have grown up in a very different way. They are growing up in, with like influences from different um, cultures, from different generations, from different influences, and they crave diversity. So when I talk to my bachelor students, it's for them, it's something that is given in organizations that there is diversity. So they would be feeling very uncomfortable entering an organization which would be all white male because that is not the upbringing that they have experienced and that would just feel weird to them. So from a recruitment perspective, one of the biggest reasons for diversity is that you're attracting more people and you're attracting more highly qualified people. And then there's also... Um, 
very convincing research showing that the more you diversify um, your organization, the more you're likely to be profitable and the more you're likely to outperform your competitors. There's a recent report by McKinsey, which is very um, interesting to show that gender diversity in top management levels and ethnic diversity in top management levels, um, those organizations that really focus on that outperform their peers by far. And therefore, there is not only the recruitment, talent attraction perspective, there's also the company performance perspective, which in my view, supports and strengthens the business case. And why, did the, why does a diverse organization outperform one that isn't diverse? Well, we see that diverse organizations, we have got people bringing different perspectives. So one intuitive reason for why they outperform is because with diverse perspective, you're understanding diverse customer needs. And you're able to target different customer groups and you're able to have conversations with different customer groups on an eye-to-eye level. And therefore, one of the reasons is mirroring the existing workforce to the markets that you're targeting. We also know from research that the more you diversify your organization, the more you encourage creativity, you more encourage different viewpoints, um, innovation, um, outside the box thinking. So innovation happens when different viewpoints are shared and come together. And with a diverse workforce, you automatically have those diverse viewpoints. So um, creativity, innovation is another reasons, reason for why diverse organizations tend to outperform non-diverse organizations. And do you get more conflict in diverse organizations? You can, um, absolutely. Um, you can get more conflict. And this is why it's very important to not just create a diverse workforce by hiring people with different backgrounds, but then also to implement inclusive practices so that people understand that others might have different viewpoints, different upbringings, different um, expectations, um, and different ways of doing things. And that there is a mutual understanding that we need to work together and that we need to be inclusive in order to give everyone a chance. So yes, the potential is for conflict is a lot higher, but, and this is also something that is, which is confirmed by research, but if you create an inclusive work culture, those conflicts can be mitigated to a very large extent. See, this is the thing that I think is really challenging with this. So I actually feel that getting diversity right is in many ways easier because it's measurable you can see that you you can see that you have a diverse workforce even even if you measure the things that aren't visible uh, you can you can you know whether you've got appropriate diversity in your workforce so as a somebody that runs a company you know i could say well here you go these are my percentage of people in this particular demographic and this demographic and so on that shows and proves that that this workforce is diverse inclusion is a different thing and i find it difficult to understand how you know whether you have an inclusive culture or not. Has there been any research on giving guidance or that, that helps people to measure or to um, confirm whether or not their culture is inclusive enough? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very good question. Many organizations now, as part of their engagement surveys, include questions around inclusion um, in the in the surveys. So they specifically ask employees in different teams, in different segments, in different divisions, to what extent they feel included, to what extent they feel that their voice is heard, um, to what extent they feel that they are treated equally to everyone else in the in the workforce. And while it's not kind of hard KPIs as you would have when you measure diversity, um, you still get a very, very good picture from employees themselves about the extent to which you have an inclusive culture and also the pockets in your organization where you might already be inclusive and then other pockets where you might be less inclusive. So employee servers, in my view, are a great tool to find out from employees themselves whether you have managed to create a culture of inclusion or whether there's still some, some way to go. I remember you shared a case study about this, didn't you, where there was a really diverse workforce that did not feel included or they didn't have inclusion at the heart of it because um, 
which was a surprise to the management. Can you just talk through that case study? Do you remember the one that I'm talking about? Yes, 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 I do. Um, it's a it's a very interesting case study because the management was very much focused on creating a diverse organization. So they were purposefully interested in hiring people from different ethnic backgrounds in that in that case. And the shame about the organization is that the diversity inclusion efforts kind of stopped after the hiring process. So there were lots of people hired from different backgrounds, but then within the organization, there were segmentation of the workforce. And one of the reasons is that there were no inclusion policies created. There were no tools given to employees um, to talk to each other and to reflect on how they should interact with each other. And that led to a situation where um, the ethnic background almost grouped people by ethnic background. So it made the difference within the organization even bigger. And what happened in that organization is that the top management um, only very late realized what was going on. And that's another kind of pitfall in that case is that um, top management stopped also thinking about diversity inclusion once they realized, hey, we've got our diversity KPIs, right? And didn't really investigate how people were feeling and what the atmosphere and the culture were within the teams. So while the good intentions were there, it's almost like the journey stopped too early and should have continued um, more towards an inclusion rather than stopping it just creating a diverse workforce. And how do you get the inclusion bit right then? So that was that was a fascinating case study for me because, again, with, with the kind of logical management science approach to running a company, you know, I would have looked at that company and thought it was doing incredibly well from a diversity and inclusion perspective, and it clearly was not doing very well once they did the, the, the colleague survey. So what would you advise that company? If that was a, I'm sure there are companies out there all over the world that are in exactly the same situation. So what would you advise they do? if they found that out? If ideally they would want to create diversity and inclusion at the same time. So they would have um, thought more strategically about making sure that everyone is integrated in the organization. If they would find out at a later point as it happened in the, in the case study. For me, the next step that needs to happen is that inclusion needs to be systematically embedded in the company culture. And that means that the I would advise the organization to create policies, practices to ensure that employees across, in that case, different ethnicities talk to each other in the right way, start to understand each other, um, start to interact with each other, um, and that top management provides a much clearer signal that they're not interested in the diversity KPI, but that they are interested in making sure that everybody is integrated, welcome and heard. And there are different different ways um, to do that. I mean, this is um, a training can can raise awareness, diversity and inclusion training can raise awareness of the of of the issues that the company was facing. It's also important to check promotion policies. In that case study, it was very clear that uh, promotion weren't distributed equally. So you need to kind of check your HR practices. Are they really inclusive or do you still have a bias in your HR practice? But then you can also move towards making inclusion part of performance management. And in that case, I would advise that all employees reflect on a performance or development goal where they can reflect upon how do I in my next year want to become as an individual more inclusive? Like what do I need to start to understand other people in my organization a little bit better? Do I need a training? Do I need a conversation with a DEI manager? Um, do I need to have some moment for reflection? Um, do I need to learn something about you know, other backgrounds. So this performance goal or development goal could be embedded systematically in everyone's performance appraisal and year-end targets. And that then starts a process where everyone feels responsible for understanding that they need to start bridging the gaps that were still existing in the company. 
Sorry to interrupt. Please give me 30 seconds of your time. You're halfway through this episode. If you're enjoying it, please rate and follow this podcast on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you so much. Now, back to the episode. And one of the things that I I observe is people don't have the language to be able to have an inclusive culture. I think this is a society issue, is that they don't know how... People don't know what words to use and they are very worried about offending or using the wrong type of language. And I think quite a lot of people feel that way. Um, I don't know if there's any research about that. So how does a manager, how does a leader of a business overcome what is actually a societal issue around fundamentally rooted in communication? So someone can have really, really good intentions and completely get it wrong from the other side's perspective. Um, it's a it's a very important question. You're right. A lot of line managers face that challenge because they don't know the how to choose the right words. And sometimes because they don't know which words to choose, they avoid the topic um, as a as a whole. So my recommendation is ideally an organization has a DEI manager or a DEI officer whose responsibility is to drive the DEI agenda forward in an organization can also be embedded in the HR department. So it can also be part of HR's role. But what's important is that the DEI manager or HR, that they create safe spaces where line managers can openly discuss about the inclusion issues that they might face and the questions that they might have, irrespective of the language. Um, so where they can be open and where they can ask questions in the way that they want to ask questions. And yes, there can be a conversation later about why maybe you should avoid certain words or terminologies or why you should maybe um, change the communication style in your meetings. That's maybe a separate discussion. But I often feel that in a First instance, what, what's missing is the opportunity for line managers to actually have those safe space conversations and to let it out, to ask openly, to maybe also sometimes share frustrations. Because I agree with you, everybody's very, very conscious and very, very um, also cautious. Um, and that sometimes, more often even, prevents us from having discussions, um, which would be important to have. Absolutely. And Another kind of angle to the same thing. So thinking, focusing on the on the manager, the line manager, if you like, when they are doing their recruitment processes, let's say they're in an organization that really emphasizes and values the diversity and inclusion in gender. They got all the policies, the right training and so on and so forth. They got great recruitment processes that means that the right types of people come into the into the interview sessions and so on. Now, when they have two individuals, let's say it's the final two, and one would help increase the diversity of the organization and one would not. Yet they feel that the one that would not is probably the one that's most competent for the job based on you know skills, experience, expertise, and all of the things that are measurable. Yet they feel pressure to hire the one that adds diversity to the organization because that's important to the, to the company that they work for. How do they deal with those types of conflicts? in their own mind, how would you suggest they make a decision from a dispassionate, logical, business-minded point of view? Again, what I would advise is in those situations to get the HR department on board um, or the DEI manager on board to have a second opinion and to also um, cross-check that I, as a manager, that I'm not maybe biased towards one of the individuals if there are several evaluators, HR, line manager, maybe sometimes even a senior manager or the team who collectively agree that the person that brings less diversity has more competence and is highly skilled for the job, I would always advise the manager to go with that selection. Um, so I would never advise someone to say, hire a less competent person just to bring in diversity. I don't think that this is the right way forward. But what I would advise is cross-check that you have um, that you're not biased, that you have not been influenced unduly in your recruitment and selection process and get a second um, person to confirm your, your viewpoint or to disagree with your viewpoint. 
And that means you need diversity on your interview panel as well then, by definition. Yes, you need. And um, it's one of um, what I find fascinating um, research pieces, which suggests that diverse interview panels hire more diverse individuals. It sounds quite logical, actually. But when we take a look at lots of, of, of uh, recruitment panels, we often see that there is not enough diversity on there. And one very easy way in organizations to create more diversity is um, by diversifying the recruitment panel. Um, and there you can also then make sure that none of the individuals, all individuals might have their own biases, but that collectively you come to a, to a good decision, both with regards to aspects of diversity, but then also with regards to aspects of performance. Absolutely. And there's another school of thought that says that you can't have a diverse organization and a meritocracy at the same time. So some people will, and, and this is where the logic of quotas come in as well, that where, where, well, it's not the way the logic, where the challenges of quotas come in as well, where people are saying, well, hold on a minute, are you just hiring this individual because they, they meet your diversity requirements? And sometimes it's used as a way of questioning whether or not that was the right decision for the company overall. So there is research out there that shows that you can have a meritocracy and a diverse organization at the same time and actually have a better company as a result of it. But can you just talk a little bit around that topic? Because I think for a lot of people, that's quite interesting and it's kind of dispel some myths about those two things being in conflict with each other. Meritocracy is based on the assumption that if we use all our talents, we will succeed to the highest of our potential and that the best performers in organizations will always be the ones who are promoted. Um, in real life, what we need to acknowledge is that some people maybe have more difficulties um, and it may be a difficult, more difficult start in life um, uh, from a disprivileged background and therefore need to overcome specific hurdles before they're even able to show their performance. And that relates a lot to the discussion around privilege. I mean, if, if you're from a, from a, from a, good class, if you have had very good education, if you were living in a, in, a, in, a, in a good country, Western world, then you have much more privileges compared to people who live in other parts of the world or who didn't have the chance to have education. And therefore, meritocracy is kind of based on the assumption that we all have equal opportunities, which we don't. By definition, we don't. And therefore, um, my view on this is that if organizations want to create diverse diversity, they might need to give a little bit more help to those who are from disprivileged backgrounds. And that can be having extra reaching out specifically from to individuals who are from um, disadvantaged backgrounds, for example. And we know that some professional services firms engage in those practices. So they give specific seminars, so they give specific types of information to young students, for example, where parents have never attended university. And these hurdles, in my view, need to be overcome in order to make meritocracy work. We're not at that point yet um, where we can say that everyone is equal and let's just kind of shine um, and then the best shining star will win the race. We're not there yet. Okay. It's interesting because I see in the educational system, I'm in the UK, so in in the UK where if you come from an from a underprivileged background, actually the requirements to get into a good university are often a little bit lower than they would be if you didn't. So I think there are some, you can see the movement and you can see it happening in all sorts of different spheres. And it's important um, that those conversations happen. And I know that there's also the counterpart kind of saying, why should they get easier entry requirements? But then if we reflect maybe with a little bit more distance, there are lots of reasons why we should give them a little extra start. Um, because they didn't have that environment that would naturally enable them to apply in those types of universities. So it's great to see that there is some movement happening. And of course, um, over time, we would hope that that movement is not, or that those exceptions are not necessary anymore um, because we are creating more inclusive societies. See, this is an interesting point. So quotas is something I, I mentioned just now, but quotas is something that's being used in many organizations to force an appropriate diverse structure um, in their boards. 
sometimes feels like a blunt instrument to get to a desired outcome. What are your thoughts on the use of quotas as a tool? Is it a point in time that's necessary just to reset things or is it a bad idea? Is it a great idea? I mean, what's your, what's your take on it? When I discuss quotas with my younger students, like the bachelor students, right? They always say, they all, almost all of them are against quotas because they believe in performance. And they also say, we have got time, um, but they're 20 years old. And I feel, well, I've seen a lot of diversity happening, but at a very, very slow pace. So I'm more in, in favor of saying, hey, maybe we need to accelerate the process a little bit. And that's exactly what a quota should do, accelerate the process. So what you've said before, it's a it's an instrument that can be used or should be used for a limited period of time to accelerate inclusion of different individuals in top management positions. It's not the end goal. Um, the end goal is to get rid of quotas um, and to create and have an inclusive culture, but it can be a way to speed up the process. Um, and if it's done um, in, a, in a good way, I believe that it can lead to changes and reflections in organizations, specifically in top management positions, which have predominantly in, in Europe been male and white. And that kind of goes back a little bit to the discussion that we had about recruitment panels. We know, again, from research that a predominantly, let's say, white, male, older board will tend to hire similar individuals. And as long as we don't get diversity at a top management level, it would be very difficult or very kind of tough discussions to create diversity in the top management and in the in the in the lower level positions so the quota brings that diversity element which can then change recruitment practices and promotion practices for top and senior level positions so i think that's a really important point so we're essentially experiencing a period of transition where policymakers and investors in this case actually a lot of, lots of investors are requiring these these um quotas to be used it's there to reset things. It's not there as a necessarily perceived permanent feature of how we're going to run our companies forevermore, because actually the goal here is not to need these types of tools in order to get diversity. So you kind of change change the playing field, put different players on the pitch, so to speak, and therefore you get a different outcome as a result of having those different players on the pitch, which, which we all feel and know will be a better outcome for everybody once you get there. But it's actually quite a long transition that we're experiencing. This is a decade or two decades or maybe three decades transition once you get the utopian world that we're all trying to imagine here. Yeah, it's a long process. And um, what we what we know is that our our biases, our stereotypes, I mean, they we grew up with them, you know, for a lifetime. So it's difficult to change that in a short period of time. So that's you know something that we need to be aware of. Um, it is a journey and we need to continue to be on that journey. We can sometimes use, as you said, instruments or tools to speed up the journey, but it's not something that can happen in short periods of time, simply because it, in, uh, creating more inclusive environments often requires us to get rid of stereotypes and prejudices that we have been raised with when we were young. Absolutely. I also have a lot of hope. So I've got three teenage children and they just don't see difference in the way that my generation saw difference. And, and, and I don't see difference in the way that my parents' generation saw difference. So I can see there's a generational effect here that when, you know, my kids are running companies or doing whatever they're doing when they're, when they're older, their whole mindset of that community will be very, very different to the current group of people that are currently running companies and making policies and so on. So hopefully generationally, we, we will over time uh, end up with a more inclusive uh, environment in any event. Yes, absolutely, and uh, I would I would totally agree um, that with more with the younger generations, things change. And going back to what we discussed at the start of of the podcast, um, it also requires the current people running organization to reflect on: Are they still addressing the right people in the right way? Absolutely. So let's then switch to less visible forms of diversity so neurodiversity specifically which i know you've done some research on which is incredibly interesting this is a new term for, for many people 
Um, just in the last couple of years, I think people have started to talk about neurodiversity as a as a thing in its own right. Even though we all we're all aware that it's that it's been a, a feature of humans for from, from the point in which we started being humans. So, could you just define for us neurodiversity, and then we will go into the specifics of the different types of neurodiversity that that could be important to understand more about? Yeah, neurodiversity very generally describes differences in terms of how our brain functions. And we differentiate uh, between those that we would say have a neurodivergent state, uh, which would include um, states like autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, Tourette, and a few others. And those who are neurotypical, where we would say that the brain works in a more more typical way. But generally, neurodiversity is about diversity in our brain functioning. Okay. And is there a dominant form of neurodiversity? Dyslexia is a very dominant form of neurodiversity. Um, other dominant forms are autism and Asperger, which is associated with autism. And then ADHD um, is also a very common phenomenon um, amongst neurodiversity populations. So I I understand that the way that um, the experience of the world that these people have is very different to each other. So you can't put them all into the same group and say, well, well, what's their experience like compared to someone that is not on not neurodiverse? But could you to just explain some of the difficulties and also some of the benefits they have as a result of? The, the neurodiverse situation that they're in? Very broadly speaking, um, individuals with neurodiverse states, they often have challenges in social interactions, in communication, in interacting yeah, with, with, with others, also in organizing themselves. So in terms of time management, keeping a day structure, keeping a certain rhythm, um, being organized, all of this are weaknesses that individuals with neurodivergent states face or challenges, not weaknesses, maybe I should say challenges that um, individuals with neurodivergent states um, face. On the contrary, however, they bring very, very unique skills. For many neurodivergent individuals, they have a very high level of creativity. Um, they are very often able to hyper-focus, which means that they are able to focus on a specific topic, on a specific task, on a specific project, and then go not only one or two, but three extra miles to make that work. And they also have very good um, numerical spatial um, abilities. So specifically people with autism, for example, they have got very strong abilities in pattern recognition and are therefore an increasingly interesting uh, workforce segment that are uh, specifically, uh, where specifically like tech companies are interested in seeing whether there are opportunities to hire them and then integrate them in their, in their workforce. Okay. So from a business perspective, neurodiversity is emerging as a really important agenda that you need to add on to your diversity and inclusion considerations. How would you address this? How would you tackle this? Because this is much, I would imagine, much harder to identify, much harder to explore with the individual than some of the other forms of diversity that we've talked about before. One of the biggest challenge, maybe specifically in our generation, will be changing with, with younger generation. One of the biggest challenges is that many people with neurodivergent states don't even know that they have a form of neurodiversity. So they have never been diagnosed um, and they have been told that they were difficult children um, when they were young. Um, they have struggled through their school life. They've sometimes struggled severely through their um, careers, but they have never understood why. They've always thought something is just wrong with me. And that makes the discussion very difficult because you kind of don't know what you can discuss about. So what makes the discussion then a lot easier and also makes life easier for individuals with neurodivergent state is once they have been diagnosed 
And in my research, and my research is focused on employees with ADHD, in my research, um, I've got lots of um, participants telling me that they have been diagnosed when their kids were diagnosed. So the kid was diagnosed. They realized, hey, I'm facing, I'm having exactly the same pattern. I should get diagnosed. Then the diagnosis came in sometimes when they were like in their 40s or even in their 50s. And that then enabled them to put a name on being different and having discussions with organizations about um, what modifications they might need in their work environment in order to be able to, to thrive. So what that means for organizations is, and maybe it's even going beyond organizations, I think that what we need is a greater awareness of what is neurodiversity and what forms of neurodiversity do exist so that we educate individuals, leaders, managers on in identifying pattern and then maybe being able to engage in discussions and that we move away from someone just being weird to understanding that that person is not weird, but is neurodivergent and therefore needs specific modifications in order to be able to perform. So there's two sides to that conversation. There's the individual that's being diagnosed as neurodiverse, and then there's the company that they work for and the individual that they speak to at the company that they have to, have to discuss how they could be accommodated in the future. They're two quite difficult conversations, particularly in an environment where general awareness is quite low still. So let's talk about the individual first of all. Let's imagine the situation that you you shared where someone was diagnosed as a result of their children being diagnosed with ADHD. So if someone is diagnosed with ADHD or, or Asperger's or one of the others that you described earlier, how should they approach their company about that? What type of language should they use? What should they be asking for? that they weren't asking for before? My advice to those individuals, and that's also something that most of the participants in our study did, is to have a straightforward conversation with their managers um, and just say, look, this is my diagnosis. Now I understand why I'm doing things maybe in a, in a different way. And these are the modifications that will make my work life a lot easier. If we take a look at um, individuals diagnosed with ADHD specifically, what they always would ask for is a quiet room or the opportunity to work from home more often or the opportunity to take longer breaks. Um, they would also ask for being put on creative, innovative, challenging tasks rather than being put on tasks where there was a lot of like administrative workload and a lot of monotony and a lot of structures and a lot of processes. And this conversation is important because what managers need to understand is that employees with ADHD, they don't ask for more home office or quiet room or more breaks because they're not performing. They ask for those specific exceptions because that enables them to perform. And that's the point I'd really like to emphasize what we've seen in our research is that enables them to perform at a much higher level compared to the neurotypical counterparts, specifically when they work on like creative, challenging um, projects. As I said before, they go so many extra miles that they tend to outperform in those situations. So my advice to individuals is be honest, Tell your manager what exactly you need and in order to perform. And then to managers, be open to having those discussions and seeing what's possible. Because giving those environments to neurodivergent individuals will ultimately help the performance of the company. Now, one of the things I would imagine is going on in their mind is, what are my colleagues going to think? What are people going to say? And I see that potentially as a barrier to people even raising it in the first place because they're worried about the stigma that might be attached to the diagnosis. Did you see that in any of the research that you did? I don't know if you covered it. Yeah, we've um, started to do some research and interviews around um, the, the stigma associated um, with autism, with ADHD, with Tourette, for example. And what we see is exactly what you've, what you've described that for some more than others, for example, dyslexia, um, is 
there's little stigma or less stigma associated with dyslexia compared to other other types of neurodiversity neurodiversity so we see a spectrum right but for some forms of neurodiversity we see a huge stigma and we also see um colleagues I'm trying to avoid contact with individuals and again um branding that person as just being difficult so we see that because of a stigma that is associated with the state and because there is little education happening because there is no awareness about it um there's again a situation where we've got one of few one or two individuals neurodiverse and then we've got the bigger group and there is no interaction or no constructive interaction happening and therefore again i believe that raising awareness educating employees um, providing information first uh, first uh, information about what neurodiversity is is super important in order to address some of the stigma uh, associated with it yeah I, i know this might be quite a difficult question to answer because i don't know if we have enough diagnosis to know the answer accurately but Broadly speaking, what proportion of the population would have one of the neurodiverse uh, conditions that we were talking about earlier? So broadly speaking, we'd say about like 10%. Okay, so this is common. Yeah. And and that's 10% of the people that would need some sort of accommodation in their workplace in order to help them perform to their best of their abilities. Yes. And again, some more than others, right? Because it's like different different levels and different types Um But yes, we would need to provide some sort of accommodation. Okay, and then from a manager's perspective, that again, so they're on the other side of the conversation, and they're they're someone's coming to them, and they're saying that they've been diagnosed with ADHD and needs the accommodations that they need, or, or or whatever their diagnosis has been. What advice would you give to them in terms of how they deal with that, with both empathy and with action? I would advise to be patient and to work on their patience. Uh, that would, I think, be my, my first advice. One of the, if you maybe take a bigger picture and look at the upbringing of those, um, those individuals, right? They've been told from kind of day one of their life that they are weird, underperformant, not worth something. So their self-esteem is very, very, very low. And what they need in order to perform aside from some of the modifications that I mentioned earlier is reinforcement, positive feedback from the line manager and maybe much more than their counterparts. So what I would advise uh, a manager is be patient, um, engage with that person on a regular basis, on a frequent basis, give positive feedback, make sure that that person understands that you value the skills that they bring and the competencies and that the strengths that they bring and make sure that the person hears from you from peers from objective business results that they have done a good job and any and this is where the patience element comes in any kind of criticism any harsh negative feedback will actually put them back into childhood experiences And sometimes, and that's something that we've seen in our study, leads to very drastic reactions in terms of um, now my line manager thinks I'm not worthy of doing something um, or my old self-esteem issues kick in and therefore I quit. And we see that quite drastically, like quite drastic decisions taken in a very short period of time. So as a manager, that would be my first advice. Uh, show empathy, show patience and monitor how you interact with people who have suffered from self-esteem issues for 40, sometimes 50 years of their life. So bring this up to the company level perspective then. So we talked a lot about how companies can deal with the more visible elements of diversity and inclusion. Is the approach different to neurodiversity or is it an add-on to what they're currently doing? If a company is really implementing inclusion inclusion practices and my inclusion practices is getting all employees reflect on do i have the right conversations and the right type of interaction and the right mindset when i'm interacting with other people in my environment then for me it's an add-on um, because it's an extension of what we've discussed before right we're treating all colleagues in the way that we would want to be treated and um 
what is maybe the additional component is really that information sharing about what in- neurodiversity encompasses. It's really interesting because it all just boils down to one principle in my mind, which is respect and embrace differences. Yes. And and if you do that, you will end up with a better company. You'll end up with a more inclusive culture and you'll hire better people. And, you know, the virtues of all those things continue to, to continue to happen. Absolutely. It is in a way very, very easy, um, respectful and empathetic treatment of others. Um, but then in, I know that in a day-to-day job, it can be very complicated because showing respect and empathy takes time, um, takes effort, um, takes sometimes acting against stereotypes and prejudices, um, and therefore can be, can be harder um, as, it, as it sounds if we just take a look at the two, two words. Absolutely. This has been a fascinating discussion and I really appreciate you taking the time to, to join me today. Are there any topics that we haven't covered or any final thoughts that you'd like to share with everybody before we, before we finish? I think we've uh, dis- discovered a lot, of, a lot of topics. There's maybe one point I'd like to, um, I'd like to mention. Like we've focused on organizations and line managers and, and employees. And one of the comments that I would like to maybe um, share is that a lot of our attitudes and a lot of our our perception of the world, they are stemming from our childhood experiences and the role models that we had at that point of time. So while we can discuss a lot about what organizations can do, I believe it's important to also make sure that um, educational systems, um, how we raise our children, um, childcare facilities, schools, universities think about the values and the messages that they send to young people. Um, Because when we change our education system towards becoming more inclusive, then we will automatically have more inclusive perceptions at at an age where individuals enter organizations. So organizations can only kind of do something, but a lot can also happen before we even talk about people becoming or young people becoming employees. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where can we find out more about your work? You can take a look at ESCP's website where you find my profile and the research that I'm that I'm doing. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. Wonderful. Thank you. So this has been a brilliant conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I love the seminar that I attended of yours a few a few weeks ago. So thank you for doing that. Um, so Professor Kirsten Alphys, thank you so much. Thank you for having me and thank you for engaging in such an interesting discussion around diversity and inclusion. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. To support this podcast, please follow us on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you again. Hope to see you next time.